0: Okay, thank you all. We invite you to sit back down, please. Let's talk about compromises, shall we? Um, I've I've made some bad ones. Um, And I think most of us will say many compromises don't work out. I've made some good ones, but one of the things I think I've discovered is uh, when a compromise is supposed to work, it's because both parties keep their part you know, in the compromise, and we find that's rare. I will always remember the news uh, uh, film of uh, Prime Minister Chamberlain waving a peace treaty uh, as he returns to England, uh, making a peace treaty with Nazi Germany, saying, we're only going to give them this small part of Poland. Months later, it was called the Sudetenland, where um, uh, the, the many Germans had settled. But months later, uh, Hitler says, I want all of Poland, and he took it in just a few days. Uh, in our nation, we had what was known as the Missouri Compromise, a bad one. That compromise prohibited slavery in the northern sections uh, of the Louisiana Purchase, Uh, except for Missouri, which was considered in the northern section, Missouri was allowed to have slaves. That was a bad compromise. Civil War was 40 years later. Uh, There's one that is working out, though you may not agree with this. There's one called the Great Compromise. The the Great Compromise in uh, American history was the establishment of two houses, both a house of representatives, meaning by popular vote, and also the Senate, meaning the states would have a say as, states, as state governments. That's changed a little bit, but uh, <clears throat> that is considered the Great Compromise, and without it there never would have been our current Constitution. Now some of you would say that's a bad compromise because things happen very slowly in our federal government. I would say that's a good compromise because things happen very slowly in our federal government. <laughs> Uh, but uh, uh, you make compromises with your children too Uh, yes you can have a dog if you promise to take care of the dog how many of you heard that before and who ends up taking care of the dog you make compromises with your spouse I'll do the lawn you do the dishes Uh, unless of course that doesn't work out Uh, you make compromises with your neighbors, and you better make sure you know how to do that. One of the greatest quotes about compromising comes from the 1800s by Robert Louis Stevenson, the author. He says, compromise is the best and cheapest lawyer. How many, we got three or four lawyers. Do I hear an amen? Amen, Amen. okay. Uh, Here's another one, There's, there's no one attributed to this. A bad compromise is always better than a good lawyer. I like that one too. Uh, In other words, you don't have to go to a third party to work it out to make sure it's all all together and and, airtight, as they call it. In our studies through the Gospel of Mark, we are now in a passage in which we're going to put Jesus aside because his name is hardly mentioned. Here we are, we're in a gospel And uh, imagine Jesus is on that stool, and he really is taking a back seat to this next very important passage. It's not that he's not there, it's just that he's not mentioned much. Uh, And so we are looking at a series of people and how they respond to Jesus. Then we'll go back to the last uh, last two of the five great miracles that, that Jesus performs. But we see that in his own hometown, people don't trust him. Secondly, we see that as his disciples go out into the villages, uh, Jesus gets greater fame by them going into the villages than he can get in his own hometown. That's the response that Jesus gets. Now we get to two people, and we understand that during their time, they were household names in Israel. And one makes a famous compromise. But in it, he loses his soul. The other one does not compromise. He keeps his principle, but he loses his head. So the account we study this morning is actually considered a flashback. If you watch uh, movies, you understand that here is the current situation, but it talks about how we got there. It tells us how John the baptizer and why he leaves this world and how King Herod leaves everyone with a sense that here is one despicable ruler. Uh, and a despicable human being who has power that he does not know how to use. I'm in uh, uh, Mark chapter 6, and I'm beginning at verse 14. It says, uh, King Herod heard about this. By this, it means the popularity of Jesus increasing throughout Israel. Now, he's in his own palace. It's on uh, the Sea of Galilee, and it's it's called Tiberius and he's in his own palace uh, and because he built his palace over a graveyard the Jews won't go in and that's fine with him he would prefer they stay out because they're a bother they always bring up these religious rules and other things that he would just rather rule as he pleases so that's where he is and but the news eventually gets to him let me keep reading John the Baptist had been raised... Oh, okay. He'd become well-known. Some were saying that John the Baptist, about Jesus, has been raised from the dead. And that is why the miraculous powers are at work in him. Others said he is Elijah. And still other claimed, uh, claimed he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of long ago. But when Herod heard this, he said, John... The man I beheaded has been raised from the dead. We need a flashback. You need to go back to understand why John beheaded him. And he basically got outmaneuvered. Uh, It says, verse 17, the beginning of it, For John himself had given orders to have John arrested and to have him bound and put in prison. And we'll find out why in just a minute. You see, Jesus' fame is spreading. Uh, to his disciples, and, and they're, I'm sure, spreading the news, Jesus has the ability to calm a storm. Uh, to all of those in that region of Decapolis, they know that here is a man who has, uh, been, uh, who has had uh, legions of demons inside of him, and Jesus has expelled them. More than that, there is an entire city called Capernaum where a dead girl has been raised And as she's come back to life, believe me, when you resurrect the dead, word will get out, Uh, and anybody who has power over death will have increasing popularity. So news about Jesus gets to the royal palace of Herod, sort of on the south end of the Sea of Galilee, where Capernaum is on the north end. Now this one is called Antipas, or yeah, Antipas, who officially is not a king, but he likes the title. His his official name is Tetrarch, meaning he rules one-fourth of a kingdom. Uh, And that kingdom is actually run by Caesar. So it's easy to get your Herods confused. There was a Herod who tried to kill Jesus when he was born. That was another Herod. There's a Herod who has worms eating out of him from Acts. That's another Herod, okay? There's all sorts of Herods. This is the Herod uh, uh, who intersects with Jesus' life and those three years of his ministry. But over a period of 200 years, there's legions of Herods, and they all need subtitles to know which is which, but two of them take the name Antipas. So this is Antipas II, okay? Or Antipas no, I won't go there. Uh, so uh, his life intersects with Jesus, and um, But but you need to know that all the Herods have a couple things in common, but the best one and the most common one that you will find as you read about any of them is they're all bad dudes. And each story about each of these kings over a period of 200 years involves intrigue, deception, misuse of power, a hunger for more power and always desiring a larger kingdom, and they'll do whatever whatever they can to get it. They murder babies to get a larger kingdom or keep the one they have. They murder their own brothers and sisters to protect their thrones. So in history, Herod Antipas, this one, he only gets a couple of lines. And what he's famous for, or one of the things, is he's famous for marrying his first cousin, or one of his cousins, and in Jewish law, uh, Herod is called an adulterer for two reasons. Uh, first of all, he uh, takes his wife from his uh, um, his not his uncle, his half brother. Get that? He has a half brother, and that becomes his half brother's wife becomes his. To do that, he abandons his wife, his first wife. And his first wife is a princess, and so she has to go back to daddy, which is just on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, and there's going to be trouble. Uh, more than that, uh, the woman he marries uh, is not just the wife of his half-brother, it's, it's his cousin. Her name is Herodias, the female uh, representation of the word Herod. She's a Herod too, just a female Herod. Does it look like the family tree is like a bramble bush, okay, like a grapevine? Uh, Maybe that's why they died out, okay. Um, So it gets very confusing, but at the heart of it, understand that to keep his title, Herod is willing, and to keep his fame, Herod is willing to make compromises in life. Well, One of the compromises he has to make is his new wife, Herodias, hears that John the Baptist says it's not lawful for Herod to marry this woman. Now, Herod should get angry, but the one who gets angry is Herodias. She feels insulted, and she wants him killed. Well, Herod makes a compromise. Let me just read this, okay? second part of verse 17. He did this because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. I hope I explained that well. Whom he had married. For John had been saying to Herod, It is not lawful to you for you to have your brother's wife. Well, uh, how do I say this? John could have done it better. But he didn't. He spoke very Uh, straightforwardly. He was speaking right out of the book of Leviticus uh, and saying what just every good Jew knew. So Herod does a compromise. He puts John in jail and he finds that, hey, I enjoy John. I've got a captive audience here. I go to John. I ask him questions. He talks back to me and he sort of likes having John around. He intrigues him. He also scares him. But the, the, this will not be a compromise that can last forever. And it's going to lead to the death of John. Now, I want you to know that there is what, what I call a core value or a core principle at work in the um, governmental leadership of the world at, that, at this time. And, and it's like, um, uh, love your friends and punish your enemies. Love your friends, but punish your enemies. And what John does is he thinks, hey, I'm being a big person here. I'm not punishing him like my wife wants, but instead I, I'm, I'm just, you know, incarcerating him, and that's going to keep him alive. Well, uh, as they've dug up Roman uh, temples, they have found that in Roman temples there are these tablets Uh, And on the tablets are inscribed lists of curses. That's right. You would take the curse of the person that you want uh, God to punish. You would take that curse and you'd put it in writing and you'd leave it in a Roman temple. And so they often find all of these curses listed. And some of them are, you know, like there is this chariot driver. May his horses be crippled. May his wheels fall off may he never be in it just goes on and on and on isn't because it's not just governmental leaders who use this core principle it's really everybody love your friends punish your enemies now john doesn't do this but jesus comes along and he changes everything he changes that core value and he says now You're to love your enemies, not just your friends, but love your enemies and pray for them. Herodias never got the message from Jesus. So it comes time to a birthday party. This is a wonderful account. There's a birthday party. And uh, let me read verses 21 to 22. Finally, the opportune time came for Herodias. And so... On his birthday, Herod gave a banquet for his officials and military commanders. All these people are under him and the leading men of Galilee. And when the daughter of Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and the dinner guest. And so the king said to the girl, ask me anything you want and I'll give it to you. Apparently, what this was, is the daughter of Herodias does a dance that sort of captures all the men's attention. That means it was probably sexually suggestive, and she was a very young woman. Therefore, you can guess what was on all the men's minds. And so, as a little king, not a very impressive king, and also as a little man in his soul, Herod wants to do a big thing for his stepdaughter, and he wants to impress his guests And so he makes that promise, ask me anything and I'll do it it for you. In verse 23, he specifies this, whatever you ask, I will give to you up to half my kingdom. Now, half my kingdom is uh, what we call hyperbole. In other words, please don't ask for half my kingdom, but I'm being generous. It's like saying this couldn't happen in a million years. Well, it could in a million years. But it, it's, it, it's exaggeration. So the daughter knows, some say it was Salome, the daughter knows that she has pleased the king and goes back to her mother Herodias and asks for advice. And the daughter, you know, a teenage daughter, what, what would she be hoping for? Oh, I'd like some jewelry. I'd like some, some new clothes. I'd, I'd like a vineyard. I'd like a savings account. How about a new chariot? So she says, Mom, what should I ask for? And Herodias has one thing on her mind, revenge. Revenge. You have now given to me, daughter, what I have longed for. And so she says to her daughter, I want you to give me right now the head of John the Baptist on a platter. I love the drama of Scripture. I just love it as I read it. Boy, now that's revenge! <laughs> you know how some things just well up in you, and finally, when you have a chance to let it come out, you go, "Oh my gosh, that wasn't very Christian, was it?" <laughs> that's exactly well. Herodias never, you know, never claimed to be very Christian, but 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 she had this opportunity, and she took it. So. Movies you'll find often depict facial characteristics when someone discovers that he or she has been taken. Um, I imagine Herodias's face goes from being the smiling benefactor, whatever you want, stepdaughter, to hearing about John's head, and he goes, Ugh. he's a pitiful loser. There are many words and phrases that describe Herod, and maybe you've worked with people who really aren't equipped to handle the authority that has been ascribed to them. They don't really know how to carry it or how to use it. Words for Herod Antipas would be guilt-ridden, status-seeking, power-hungry, easily manipulated, self-aggrandizing. A man without core principles. We get reintroduced to this Herod about three months later, or a few months later, and um, the man that he's afraid of, John the Baptizer, has been raised from the dead. He believes this could be, you know, the, the role that Jesus has. He's actually the reincarnation, or the, you know, the. Uh, John the baptizer has come alive, and he's, he's there in, in Jesus. He now has Jesus in his presence. Jesus is bound, and Jesus is beaten. More will happen to Jesus after uh, Herod is done with him, but in that moment, he looks at Jesus and asks him questions. And Jesus decides not to give him the time of day and doesn't answer, doesn't say a word through this whole trial. It's sort of like... It's sort of like Herod is looking at Jesus and saying, you're not so tough, are you? You get that? I'm going to put it another way. Several years ago, someone graciously gave me a ticket to the Bronco game, and it was a sp- very special ticket in that I got a box seat with some other men in the, in the church, and, and then we also got with a box seat, which was right next to the owner's box, uh, next, we also got a, a field pass. So we were down on the sidelines as they were practicing. And uh, I went down there, and as you know, I, I try never to be funny um, so I'm down there, and uh, I'm looking at, the, at these guys. Here are the, the tight ends, the, you know the 320-pound uh, uh, offensive tackles. I'm looking at those guys, and they're a little bit out of earshot, but my, my friends here at Bergen Park Church are right here. and, 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 I, and, I, and, I, and I just quietly mentioned, uh, they don't look so tough, do they? <laughs> uh, that was meant uh, to, to gain attention. It was meant to, to be funny because they were enormous men. And they were padded so they looked even more enormous. Herod is looking at Jesus and he's saying, I was afraid of you. You're powerless. You're pitiful. There's nothing about you that would make me want to fear you anymore. Now, as we look at that situation and we realize that what Herod does is he doesn't want to have on his head the death of Jesus. And nor does he have the authority. So, you know, he sends him back to Pilate. And Pilate is the one who originally sent him because he thought, well, maybe Herod will do what I don't want to do. Here they are compromising back and forth and neither of them wants the responsibility. So he goes back to uh, he goes back to Pilate and Pilate eventually has to uh, crucify Jesus. Not that he wants to, but he has to. And as you look at that situation, yes, they can both say to Jesus, You're not that tough, are you? But understand both of them only lasted for a few more years before they were exiled or deposed. And what's happened to Jesus since? The second person we want to look at is with a person we called a fulfilled prophet. Look at this right here, because John is the one who's incarcerated, who's put in prison. And and uh, the best description of John comes from the Gospel of John. John the Apostle writes about John the Baptizer. And he says this, He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all men might believe. Uh, John is a testifier. He's an announcer. He he knows what his mission is, and his mission is to testify to what God is going to present in Jesus Christ and that people would believe through his testimony. It says in verse 23 of John 1, John replied uh, in the words of Isaiah the prophet, So he's now giving what his role is or what his mission is. I am the voice of one calling in the desert. Make straight the way of the Lord. John's identity, you might say, is being a voice, an announcer of the Messiah who's coming. And his job as he announces this Jesus is that he's preparing the way for everybody to believe. In John chapter one, again, verse 26 and 27, he says, I baptize you with water. And John replied, but among you stands one you that you do not know. And he is the one who comes after me. The thongs of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. So John's method, you know, he says, I'm going to baptize completely. I'm going to act weirdly. I'm going to speak boldly. But I don't do this so that you will esteem me. I do this so that you will make Jesus the celebrity of your life. The whole region is flocking to John and John is trying to turn them back again to God through baptism and repentance. And so as they get turned back to God, he says, I'm not the one that you're to focus on. And he says, compared to the one who's coming, compared to Jesus, I'm just a messenger. I'm a preparer. I'm real, but I'm not the real deal. I'm unworthy to even serve Jesus. Don't even think about me rivaling him. And then he gives these famous and it's seven words in your English translation, he says this, he, Jesus, must increase and I must decrease. His mission is to decrease. Who lives by that anymore? Come on, who does that in life? Now, I'm not asking you to say, I want a lesser job. I'm not saying I, I want a smaller home or anything like that. But in comparison to the influence Jesus to have on this world, you're to decrease and let him increase. So with John beheaded, he now becomes a memory and Jesus has no rival, no competition Jesus is asked about John a little later, and he says, you know, he's gone, yes. But he says, uh, uh, you know, there's no one greater who's ever come. There's no greater man that's ever lived. And yet we realize that John also had doubts about Jesus. When he was in prison and being interviewed consistently by Herod, this is what the the sort of thing that John says. He goes, I'm sending a messenger to Jesus, and I'm asking Jesus this question. Are you the one who was to come, or should we expect anyone else? I I love the reality of John. Don't you? Yes, I'm here. I know what my role is. But you know, now that I'm in jail... Sometimes I doubt, is this the one that we've all been waiting for? He hasn't set me free. I don't see the, you know, the gates of my prison being opened. I don't see an end to my suffering. I don't see uh, Israel, being, uh, Israel expelling the Romans. I don't see all the things that I'm expecting. Are you the one? And Jesus says, look, you're the one. Jesus about John. I tell you, among those born of women, there is no greater than John. Yet, the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. John does not desire fame, doesn't he? All he wants is for Jesus to increase. You know, on this Father's Day, what is it that you want to increase? Evaluate. You see, here's Herod. He's a man of some importance, has some government authority, always wanting to expand that. Yet, as Herod's go, he's only important because he was Jesus' contemporary. In three years, he'd be exiled. Uh, Before those three years, again, going back to his first marriage, his first marriage uh, was the daughter of the neighboring king. So they decide to have a war and Herod loses. God's not going to let him win. So he's seen as powerless, and he's exiled by Rome. He just fades out. We still talk about John, and today we talk about the words of John. We talk about the attitude of John. Herod used John and Jesus as enemies, and you punish your enemies, and you say, they're not so tough if you win. So the question is, As you look and you compare. Look at this life of Herod. And and, and look at this life of John. Remember, Jesus was put on a seat here. I guess Herod would say, I want Jesus to stay right back here. I want him to stay invisible. I don't want him to have any influence upon my life. And what John is saying is, I want to put Jesus there and hide behind him. I want Jesus to be so visible in my life that he is honored. And sometimes it'll take the funniest way to do that. I, I gotta tell you this because it just happened in the last two weeks. A person I know in the community that has talked to me about God and talked to me about Jesus, and he's one of those who says, you know, Jesus can't be God. There's, I mean, there's just no way that this, this person who lived can be God. Uh, he comes back from his wintering in, in, in and warmer climate, and he sits me down at his home, and he says, uh, Jim, uh, I've joined a ministry. I said, well, before you join a ministry, you ought to be a Christian. He goes, oh, well, I'm a Christian. Jesus Christ is God's son, Jesus Christ. And I, I'm listening to that, and I'm thinking, he heard me, he heard me, he heard me. And he goes, uh, and I say, well, how did that happen? Because it happened this, you know, this winter while you were away. So I wanted to say, and was there anything I said in the last 20 years? That... <laughs> and, and this is so good. He says, I golfed with a man who had, in his, at the age of 85, has a handicap of three. And um, he golfed differently than I do. The way he played his golf was just different. So I asked him, what's going on in your life? And he goes, well, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, and I run this ministry uh, so that we go to all the professional golf tournaments, and we, and, 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 you know, we hand out water, and we have an information booth, and we volunteer at these. Would you like to join us? He goes, yeah, I'd love to join you. And he joins, and he's involved in these, and through that he gives his life to Christ. I had no influence. And I certainly didn't impress him with my golf. But along came the perfect John to stand right there and put Jesus ahead and say, I must decrease, he must increase. Friends, you have relationships like that. And you can be the announcer, the preparer. You may not golf. You may not be handy with tools. Uh, I find that sometimes it's to an advantage that you say, I'm not a pastor. Because they expect you to do that. But whatever it is, understand that if you let Christ increase and you decrease that he's going to start looking good to the most unsuspecting people. Let's pray. Father, two great examples. One, a really bad dude. Totally wrapped up in self. The other one, willing to step aside after all he does is announce. Lord, we pray For long lives and no persecution of everyone in this room. But we also pray they'd understand they can have a deep influence in the most unsuspecting areas. And we pray that they would be praying for that influence and they'd be looking for the opportunities that you are opening up. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.